Good morning and welcome to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to episode 101. We are in the second century. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls, The Winds of Winter, Ariane 1. Hello, I am your jolly green giant, your jack of all glades, here to take you through another episode today and I am speaking to you from a, it's sunny right now but don't let it trick you, the spring rains, the spring showers, they've been coming down merry old England, seemingly only whenever me and the princess Zelda go for a walk and then it's quite sunny after, but luckily the energy is there either way, we'll get through the many many things we have to talk to you about today, because we have loads to get through before we even get to the chapter. Yes of course, I thank you for coming along, I thank you for your support as always it's wonderful to interact and see you'll see those numbers ticking up and up and up the popular things we've got going on at the moment it's very nice welcome into this second century i really like that name for it the second century i'm going with that for now yes we have lots to cover don't we just last week it was episode 100 we had the very very special episode the first of our 100 questions for the winds of winter series came out it was even more importantly the debut of emily of the eerie my new semi-regular at least co-host or whatever you'd like to whatever title you'd like to use so that was great that was enjoyable that came out and good news you all seem to like it as i said the numbers are great the feedback is great please do continue sending your thoughts sending in your welcomes to emily and sending in more questions we've still got 90 to go don't forget and we've got more than a few but we'd always like some more and in keeping with that send us your answers who do you think will be the first pov to die what do you think has happened to mira reed how exactly will John be brought back to life if he will be at all? That was just some of the big old questions we had to tackle on the first episode of that series. Like I say, you can find that now. That is episode 100. It's, it's the description of all the capital letters in. If you're struggling to find it, I did make quite a big deal. Because hey, 100 episodes, pretty big deal, I think. So yes, that was big news. That was a big thing for the other faces. Big thing for everybody out there. Again, I thank you. I thank Emily. I think she did great on her, her first episode. Her, not just her first episode here, by the way. Her first episode ever. That was her first ever podcast. Seemed like a natural to me. I'm sure you'll agree. And I'm definitely looking forward to the next iteration, which is coming your way soon. I can tell you now that will probably be with you maybe the weekend if we're lucky, maybe this time next week. But soon anyway so do get those questions in do get those answers in because we might like to discuss some of them on the show might be 10 questions might be a few more we'll see we'll see what we can fit in the schedule it'll continue to be a bit haphazard it'll be here there and everywhere especially once we introduce scraps and screens which is coming soon but you'll be getting episodes pretty regularly as you can tell now last week sure you did only get episode 100 normally you'll probably be getting the 100 question episodes alongside scraps and skulls as well there's a reason that didn't happen last week i shall tell you about in a second the next big big piece of news something very enjoyable to share with you is this past sunday as in the 9th of may myself and emily were both invited on to history of westeros's live stream for the very chapter we're covering today Ariane 1. So that was very, very exciting. My thanks, of course, to Aziz and the Chef for having us on. As I say, exciting always for me, but even more so for Emily. She not only had her first podcast like two weeks ago, she's now on her first live stream. What a pace she's setting. We're going to have to slow her down a little bit or she's going to have her, her own HBO show by next month or something like that. We really do need to keep an eye on her. She's flying ahead. I know she did wonderful for that as well. It was a great time, lots of laughs. Luckily, we were diving into a great chapter like we'll do again in a second. I nobly supplied all the technical issues so that Emily didn't have to worry about her first time being a bit dodgy here and there. No, I take that crown always whenever I go on History of Westeros, so my apologies to a share, especially for messing up again. But it all got there in the end. 
Now I know more than a few of you are always in those live streams anyway. We did see some of you there, so thanks to those of you who were. If you'd like to check that out, and I truly suggest you do, you know where to go. Just hop over to History of Westeros. You can go and watch it on YouTube. You can listen to it in podcast form. You can do whatever you like with it. And as I say, great fun was had chatting not just to Aziz, but we got a lot of a share this time as well. That's always great to hear. And it will mix well with today, won't it? Yes, I might have to repeat myself slightly here and there today, but there's plenty that we didn't get to cover. There's plenty more that the other guys had in their takes and thoughts that are way above my head. So I suggest you do both. Why not listen to that and listen to Scraps and Scraps? That's always the best mix. So that was great uh, live stream appearance there. That's always lots of fun to be on History of Westeros. And again, my thanks to Aziz and the Shea and everybody over there at History of Westeros listening in and questioning and everything else. Now, while we're on the subject of History of Westeros and this missing episode that you might be wondering about, last time out, uh, we had Elaine slash Sansa 1 for Scraps and Scrolls. And in that episode, I told you that next we'd be tackling Theon. Well, that was the plan. And as many of you know, originally History of Westeros was going to have Jason uh, Conception of the Ringer and Binge Mode fame on to discuss that chapter. So that was very exciting. Unfortunately, scheduling conflicts arose. So Theon 1 has been moved, I think, to somewhere like mid or early June. And in keeping with History of Westeros, because we're so linked on these Scraps and Scrolls episodes, we've decided that we'll move Theon to June as well. So that we'll come out next to each other like Ariane is. So that's all recorded. That's all ready for you. That's a really fun chapter to dive into as well. It's actually quite a long episode. That'll come out in the, well, it's not even too far distant in the future now, is it, June? So don't worry, your Theon fix is coming. It's replaced instead with Ariane today, which is great news because it's a great chapter, which you will have heard if you heard the uh, live stream. You would have listened to me waxing poetic about it. It's a really, really good chapter. We will get into that in a second. Before that, of course, we have some thank yous to do, as always. And that goes to all of you, obviously, for your listens and your downloads and your comments and your questions sent in and your answers sent in and those kind words to Emily. Please do keep them up. But we must also thank our patrons, the engine that keeps us going, those who we owe so very, very much to. There's definitely no way we'd be able to be expanding into this second century without you with the 100 questions, with scraps and screens, with more and more scraps and scrolls. Ah, yes. In fact, I remind myself just going through that. I've forgotten something to inform you about. Last time in episode 100, I did tell you, I did tease you that we'd be having some extra icebreaker episodes with Emily. I can tell you the first of those is recorded and it's a sporkle spectacular. Myself and Emily, we went head to head over the opening sentences of A Storm of Swords, just like we used to do in the old days of some great guests of the past. It was the exact same format. If you're not quite sure what I'm on about, you can go back in the feed and find them. They're there. They're quite a lot of fun. And that was just another great way to welcome Emily into the aisle, take the pressure off a bit, just have some fun with it. That has also been recorded and will be with you probably sometime this week, I would say. It'll be up on Patreon first, of course, but then will be available for public consumption. The other icebreaker episode we've got, which is a guest interview with Emily, we're just going to have a whole episode dedicated to learning more about her and how she came to the series and all of that kind of stuff. That one's going to be patron only, but that's not quite ready yet. That's coming down the pipeline. And something else I forgot, not going well so far, is it? You can now find Emily on Twitter at Emily of the Eerie, so that's nice and easy to remember. She's made that just for you, just for the purpose of this venture. She's joined on the Isle of Faces, so you can use that to welcome and say your hellos or anything else you want to talk to her about. I encourage you to do so. 
Anyway, where was I? Thanking the patrons. Of course we must do so because none of this would be happening without them. So I thank you all, but especially I'd like to highlight some people. And in fact, we have a new person on our Jade Branch tier who is going to be included in the shout outs here. And that is Gardener Queen. That's a nice name. I like that. A little bit of reach theme in there. That's always good. So welcome Gardener Queen. But we also have Lomas Knight Rider, Survivor of the Yin Sleepover, Grizzly M, Glenn T, Egg and the Sip, Lord Commander, Namian Darklin, KM, and Archmaester June, healer of the lesser poxes. Please do give your thanks, of course, all over the world, wherever you are, to our healthcare workers and everyone that's getting through this. It is still out there. It is still important that we pay attention to it. So my thanks to Archmaester June and to everyone out there and to our wonderful patrons. Okay, I think that's everything I needed to discuss with you before we actually get down to business here. Probably not. I'm sure I've forgotten something, but one of you handy, handy folk will remind me, I'm sure. Until that time, let's get on with our scrapping and scrolling. Let's talk about Ariane 1. And again, yes, I remind you, some of this stuff, if you, if you have listened to the live stream, might be repeated, but not too much. Don't worry. There's plenty more to uncover here. You know what we do here? Page by page, sentence by sentence, there's always more stones to be uncovered. So like I mentioned earlier, we were due to visit a, a popular area up in the north that we'd hardly been to in ages. Instead, thanks to those scheduling conflicts, we're going to visit an area that we've barely been to at all, let alone lately, and we definitely haven't seen whatsoever in ages. And it's good news for me personally, because it's an area you might remember that I'm greatly interested in and I love covering in Dawn. And even more importantly, it's a character that I really, really like to discuss in Ariane. She's one of my favourites. Just like Elaine last time out, it's a long-awaited welcome back for her. In fact, it's the longest gap out of all our preview chapters so far. And I think you will remember all the copious, copious amounts of time we spent discussing the inclusion of the Dawn storyline when we first covered Feast, what that meant for the story as a whole, what a big decision it was from George. We looked a lot at the strict comparisons between the Dawnish and the Ironborn storylines. We obviously looked in depth at the characters carrying said storylines, and we certainly devoted a lot of our attention talking about Ariane, who I came to name as the centre of the Dornish storyline. Sorry, Hotar, we, we like you, but you're no Ariane. As we explored two of my favourite chapters in The Queenmaker and The Princess in the Tower. Yes, what a long time ago that seems since we last got some real Ariane chat in. There's plenty of comparisons to make between Ariane and Sansa, which we will come to later, but the first one we can make today is in terms of their considerable gaps from our readership. Like Sansa, we have to travel all the way back to Feast for our last Ariane POV. In fact, funnily enough, Ariane's last Feast chapter came right before Sansa's, which was a lane two, you'll remember. So their gap is almost exactly the same. And just to remind you, that's a 78 chapter gap in total between POVs for Ariane. And that's if this one turns out to be the first chapter of Winds, which we're assuming it won't be. It could be, but probably not. So that last chapter, the princess in the tower, the conversation with Duran, the reveal of the grand marriage plans of the past, the fire and blood speech. Doesn't that all seem like ages ago? Well, it was. In real time, we're talking just short of 10 months ago, we were talking about that here on the aisle. That's ages, isn't it? We've covered so, so much since then, of course, but still that chapter, especially its ending, sticks out to us. So let me give you some comparisons then on that type of gap. Let's do some statistics. Ariane, she joins Brienne and Aaron Greyjoy as the only newbie feast POVs to not be featured in dance at all. 
In fact, only Sam and Sansa added to that total, because obviously they were around before Feast as POVs. However, if we're being fair, yes, Ariane did appear in Dance of Dragons for the one chapter in The Watcher, which was obviously Aereo Hotar. So she does have an advantage over Sansa there, but in some ways I feel that was only more frustrating for us. It was teasing, wasn't it? As much fun as The Watcher was, we desperately wanted to see it from Ariane's view. We wanted it to be in her head so we could see the fallout from the conversation with Duran. We could see how she was now in on the planning and the scheming. We could catch up with her. But no, George denied us and we had to remain hungry. We had to wait to see what those two could do together, father and daughter, on the same team. We had to wait for, really, to see behind the curtain. Yeah, we did get to see the effects, we got to see them working together, but we didn't see it from her angle. That's what we really wanted. Which leads me on to the very, very heavy responsibility that this chapter bears. This is definitely something I talked about a lot on History of Westeros about. Not only is this our only window into Dawn and Duran, the Noah of Plans and the connection to the Sand Snakes as well, who we figure to feature so heavily in dance, but more importantly, Ariane One not only has to knit all those ideals together, but they have to do it with the larger southern plot as well. Okay, yes, Hotar can maybe pick up some slack for Dawn later in the book, but it's Ariane who's truly stepping into the limelight. It's her who's charged with making the entire introduction of Dawn as a storyline, that massive decision from Feast, worth it. This is what it's all been leading to. The chapter has to remind everyone of everything after that gap. It's got to introduce the bridge from Dawn to the Targaryen plot. It hits Westeros and it has to move Ariane along personally. That is a big, big deal. In many ways, we're talking about the biggest storyline in The Winds of Winter, which you could say is the return of the Targaryens to Westeros. Now, whether we get Daenerys included in that, maybe we do, maybe we don't, but we know Aegon is, and it's going to be a pretty big deal. And it's Ariane One's job to not only first introduce that to us here in terms of preview chapters, but maybe for the whole book as well. Like I said, this chapter is probably going to be pretty early on. This is a whole new idea we're getting used to, that the continent is going to have to get used to. It's going to change everything. And we're going to have to see some of the aspects of that, some of the attitudes that people take, some of the questions, the most important questions that the nobility of Westeros have had to ask themselves for decades. That's all coming up and it, we're all going to get our first hints of that in this chapter. This is big, big stuff, people. In fact, let's be specific. Ariane 1 will represent the, let's call them free questions, that everyone will have to go through soon. Not of the emotional connection that the Martells will, but still... Will you side with the Targaryens when they come? Or are you going to stick with the Lannisters slash Baratheons? Do you believe Aegon's story? Is he the real deal? And then eventually, after that, what about Daenerys? And we're going to touch on all three of those throughout the chapter, even the Daenerys one, right at the end. These themes, these big, big themes, again, I say, are very much the point of this book, other than everything going up on the wall in the north, obviously. That's all being siphoned down into this one chapter. It is our big walkthrough, our big introduction. It couldn't be more important, I don't think. In terms of preview chapters, I mean, the responsibility only gets large, doesn't it? Given everything that we've been gifted by George in terms of these preview chapters, well, this is the only Dornish window. It's the only window into Aegon at all. It's the only real Westeros window, if you think about it. Yeah, okay, we have Theon and we have Sansa, but they're so far removed from the central Westeros plot. Sansa is screwed away up in the Vale. She's completely like shielded off from everything. Most people don't even know she's there. Theon is almost as far away as she can get up in the wilderness of the north. He's completely concerned with that battle, that war going on. And that's it, if you think about it. 
Aaron Greyjoy, okay, yeah, he's somewhere off the south coast, but it's pretty hard to count him. This is it. This is our big window. So even more responsibility to shoulder from Ariane 1. This is a really big chapter. There's so much to talk about. It's a fun, fun chapter. I'm very, very glad that we get to talk about it. You know, like I've said, I love Ariane. I like talking about her. I like her as a character. So to get back to that after so, so long is a real treat. Now let's return to that word Targaryen because it is so key. We will get to talk a lot about Ariane, the person, Ariane's growth especially, that's a real key theme here. But it is also, in a more overall sense, about the Targaryens, about the merging of the Dornish and Targaryen plotlines. This is what the Dornish storyline was included for, that big decision that George made. Because Ariane finds herself in this chapter with the responsibility of basically choosing whether Dorne will join with the invading force of Aegon and John Connington or not. I've used the word responsibility a bunch of times already, doesn't get much bigger than that, does it? So the chapter won't just touch on Targaryens themselves, but about John Connington and his position in the political sphere. It will focus heavily on the truth of Aegon's claim. We're even going to have some Viserys talk, some Aerys talk, and like I said, Daenerys towards the very end. So it just doesn't get bigger in scope and importance, especially in terms of that central slash southern Westeros vibe plot, whatever you want to call it. This is it. This is opening the door on that. And maybe we do get a John Connington chapter prior to this. Maybe we get a Cersei that will also discuss Aegon's invasion. But I would bet no. I think this one's going to come first. And it has the job of continuing, again, what was in many ways the point of not only Winds of Winter, but a Dance of Dragons as well. How the Targaryens return to Restoros. We did get that John Connington chapter towards the end, the Griffin Reborn. Well, this one obviously connects very, very well with that as we learn more about the invasion and we learn how people are reacting to it. Ariane first, but the rest of Restoros afterwards. And you know what a big deal Aegon's coming is. You don't need me to repeat it to you. We know how this is going to completely not only flip the table, but then chop it up for firewood. And George revealing how it's going to affect people, the type of choices they're going to have to make, that's pretty important. So Ariane's going to show us those questions. Is this Targaryen friend or foe? Is it even real or not? But also the risk of what's involved if you come up with the wrong answer. The huge impressions this can make on a whole continent's future. She's really thrown into the hot seat. She controls, yeah, sure, her family's future, but she also controls armies. She controls literally life and death. It's all on Ariane right here, and she's going to relate that to her previous experiences as well, of course. And as mentioned, we'll see the effect this has on the perception of Daenerys. As Tyrion once knew, Aegon getting here first matters. It will change how Daenerys is accepted and looked upon by Westeros when she finally does come over, which we will also cover today. In fact, we'll have one new character who will straight up warn us exactly of what dragons coming back will mean for Westeros. So let's look at how this chapter personally deals with the Ariane that we've been waiting so long for. Yes, huge responsibility. Yes, big in terms of preview chapters. But it's also huge personally for Ariane. We finally do get that window into what it meant for her to be on board for her father. We finally will get that curtain lifted. So George is sating our hunger finally. But mostly, we'll be able to compare what her previous plotting and feast now means to her with the benefit of hindsight. And the maturing she's done since, that's such a strong theme early on. And whether she can manifest those skills out onto the proper stage of Westeros where everything matters just so much more. I must tell you here at the beginning, before we even start really, that it is a wonderful chapter for Ariane's confidence in herself, her worries on her skills, her accepting for what she truly did in Feast and everything in between. It's a wonderful window into a fascinating character, one who is one of my very favourites. Before we really get going, a few more stats for you. 
This chapter chimes in at 4,946 words, which is longer than I remembered. If you'd asked me before going in, is it the longest Ariane ever? I haven't checked, actually, but I think probably not. It's probably about midway. So a little bit shorter than Elaine and just to tell you a little bit shorter than Fionn as well, but still pretty chunky. Get quite a lot in there. And something we haven't really touched on either is, yes, we do have another Ariane coming up after this. So we're very, very lucky. That'll be next week, obviously. Ariane 2, it's about the same length. I won't go into what happens in that chapter. We'll save that for next week. We've got enough to talk about here. Now, I didn't think you need reminding of where we were at the last time we saw Ariane. Obviously, she did have that conversation with Duran. She was corrected about the many mistakes that she'd made in her life in terms of what she thought Quentin was up to, what her father was up to. We know all about that. We also did see her in dance where she was teaming up with Duran. They sent the Sand Snakes off. They also sent Balon Swan off to search for Darkstar. Ariane was a big part of that in persuading Marcella to play a role. And they had just heard, or Duran had just heard, about this big fleet coming across the narrow sea. He didn't know the specifics of that just yet, although he was obviously hopeful. We will cover that as we go. So then there's not that much more for me to say. I can tell you this is a chapter of establishment. It's a chapter of reflection. Yes, we will be reminded of all aspects of House Targaryen with John Connington as an aside. We will meet some new characters. We will get to talk a lot about the Dornish politics, what's going on basically behind the Martells, potentially. We're definitely going to meet some aspects of that as well. We'll have the themes of secrets, family secrets, family roles. We're going to talk about Quentin quite a lot as well. We're going to talk about the relationship between Quentin and Ariane, between the two of them and their father. The ghosts of the Dornish past. That knife edge that Ariane is going to walk along the whole time. How she will decide the fate and the allegiance of Dawn and therefore maybe all of Westeros as well. We're going to really focus on how Ariane, out of all the new people in the Dornish and Ironborn storylines, really is a step above, I think. She really is stepping into the limelight. Victorian, he's already made a merge with the main storyline. Fionn and Asher, they're doing the same up in the north. Quentin's already dead, Aaron Greyjoy probably not far behind, it's Ariane I think who's really really stepping out onto again the most important of stages and well we're going to see what effect that has on her. I think I could just go on and on and on about this intro about Ariane, how much we love her, how interesting her character is in terms of what we've seen her do before, in terms of what we're going to see her do now but I won't delay you any further, let's actually dive into the chapter now shall we, let's go into Ariane 1. So the first thing to notice, much like the Theon chapter you're going to have to wait for, is the chapter title. Well, there isn't one. This one is called Ariane. It's not Princess in the Tower. It's not the Queen Maker. It is just her name. Ariane is named Ariane in this one and her next preview chapter as well, Ariane 2. So I think we can take that as an early marker of her promotion into the stronger set of characters, the more central and the more important characters and storylines that we just spoke about a moment ago. The chapter naming convention was something that came in with Feast when Ariane was also introduced, as we spoke about a lot back at the time, a lot, a lot. It was highly symbolic of the expansion of scope and where the POV stood in relation to those who came before. We had a brand new set, we had these brand new storylines in the Iron Islands and down in Dawn, and with them came these new types of title. Although the edges can sometimes be blurred, I think you'll agree that the main characters from the first three books, they tended to keep their first names as chapter titles, while those still on the periphery, they've kept the title chapters. Only Fionn, Sansa and Aya have gained title chapters when they originally started out as name titles, and they are clearly important high-tier characters. And with those three, the role of identity in those titles is so upfront and in-your-face and opaque, I don't really think we can count it. All three are, at one point or another, literally called those chapter titles, whether it be 
Cat of the Canals, or Elaine, or Reek. So it's not quite the same as a princess in the tower, for example. In fairness, this is maybe a convention we should have caught a bit earlier on, because it's actually happening all over these preview chapters. Theon, like I said, we have discussed, but you'll have to wait to hear from me. But again, I don't think that really counts, as Theon has literally changed the name he's referred to as. He is called Reek. But Victorian and Barristan have also gone from titles in Feast and Dance to now name titles, if you can follow this little lingo I've got going here. In Victorian's case, it's a little confusing because he actually did change from a name title to a Victorian one for his final dance chapter. So I suppose actually my little stat about Aya and Sansa and Theon from a moment ago isn't quite correct. But we said at the time about this being very representative of Victorian's massive change in personality, maybe the possible influence from Makaro as well. He was a man being changed. Why that has changed to his name specifically, not sure it quite fits in, but we did talk about it a lot. Barry is where he really should have noticed it in terms of these preview chapters, because his first four chapters in Dance are all titled, and those two that we covered a couple of weeks ago now are not, and I don't think we mentioned it at the time. So we can make the same argument that Barry is making the step up onto the main stage after appearing late in his lone book appearance, which is what Ariane is probably doing. Of course, it should be noted that this is the easiest thing in the world to change before coming to actual publication, should George want to. So perhaps we are reading into nothing, but we can only go with what we've got, and I think it is symbolic of Ariane's big step up. She really could be huge in wins, as we'll explore as we go through the chapter. We could even maybe link her up with Barristan in terms of being privy to the two dragon characters. We could see a bit of a mirror between these two. They could be the closest amongst the respective POVs surrounding the Targaryens. We know Barristan will be close to Daenerys, we think Arianne could end up very, very close to Aegon. Yeah, maybe Tyrion is in contention on Danny's side, but I think Barry will still be the most privy to her. There's still going to be a bit of a wall, a wedge between Tyrion and Daenerys. Should they even meet, we don't know. So I actually quite like that comparison. And if you think about it, maybe Arianne and Barristan will actually connect later on, especially if Barristan does come over. That is possible, it is highly intriguing, and I'd quite like to see that. I think there's some more comparisons we can make, actually, between Barry and Arianne that we'll get to later. Now, as for our weekly first line watch, well, this is about as gentle as you'll get from the preview chapters. There's no deaths or threats this time. Instead, we have the immediate confirmation that Ariane is leaving Dawn as off to tackle the main plot. The big stuff happening in central slash southern Westeros. She's stepping out, as we say, onto that big stage. Now, we started to guess that Ariane might be put to this use at the end of Dance of Dragons, when Duran was at least made aware of a fleet coming to Westeros. Now, the dots hadn't quite been connected at that point. He didn't know what was up with that fleet and what was coming, but we could see the way the wind was blowing. So this is more of a reminder than anything, but the other thing it does is hint that we're likely going to be getting a travel chapter today. And that's something else that stands Ariane out from the preview chapter's crowd because we really don't get those at all. Technically, Victorian is, I know we haven't covered him yet, but it's hard to count that one just because it's so short and it's not quite the same. And even more technically, Aaron Greyjoy in The Forsaken is also travelling the whole time, it just doesn't seem like it to him, but we'll get to that later. In terms of travel chapters as we know them, as we know the term travel log, this is the only one from our wins previews. In Elaine's chapter, we spoke about how conventional wisdom might say that the meeting of new characters and expanding of plot views will go down now, will decrease because we're reaching the final act of the series. And the same could be said for travel chapters, couldn't they? There just won't be that much time for them. But while both statements might be true in an overall, on average sense, that doesn't mean that George isn't going to include them at all. Elaine did introduce a whole new bunch of characters. As it happens, this one will do its fair share of that. And Ariane is unlikely to be the only one of travel chapters. There's still a lot of moving about to do for many of our characters. So yes, that average probably will go down, but we'll at least get some from, for example, 
Danny's hopeful migration westward. Many of us figure that Sam will probably be on the move again from Old Town. We might even get a Bran or a Davos. But they are going to be rarer than before, and Ariane probably gets the first nod of the book, at least the first nod of the preview chapters. Aside from letting us know she's on the move, the first line is a bit more subtle in its second clause about Duran rising from his chair to say goodbye. At the beginning, we're so hungry for information and to get reacquainted with Ariane that we probably miss it. But remember what we saw of Duran in both Feast and Dance in that his condition has been worsening. He's been in incredible pain. It hurts even just to move his chair. And I'm actually drawing a blank right now about whether we do actually see him stand at all in Feast or Dance. I can't remember a specific incident. You might have to remind me there if I'm wrong. But he's definitely not getting up for any small reason. So the fact that he does get up in this first line to say goodbye to Ariane well, he knows this is an important moment, and he's doing it as a lovely symbol of love for his daughter, that which she once herself doubted, remember, and somewhere within, he's probably doing it because he knows it might be his last chance to, even if he's not going to admit that to himself. The Starks have a thing about how members of their family should never go south, because they die down there. Well, the Martells could easily think the same thing about their kin going north, or east in Quentin's case. And again, Durant must, must be aware of that, because he's the one who normally stays behind. Elia goes off, hmm. Oberyn goes off, hmm. Quentin has gone off, and okay, Duran doesn't know yet, but he soon will. So what's going to happen with Ariane? This is going to be an incredible focus of Duran's mind soon enough if it's not already. And what it makes me think of is, well, let's just switch it. Let's say that Ned was the only one left. Let's say he'd never left Winterfell, but all the children had gone out and Catelyn had gone out, and they had all died in the same way that they did. Just imagine Ned being there alone at Winterfell, knowing that they were all gone and died. That... That breaks your heart, that image, doesn't it? I can't handle it. Well, that's exactly the same as Duran. He has that same heartache, we're just not as close to him. Now, he obviously silences those thoughts because he's still sent out Quentin. He's now sending out Ariane because he's still sending her out as a political tool, like he did with her brother. But it is there. It must be in the back of the mind. He knows what it's like for people to not come back. And again, like I say, consider that he's likely to get news of Quentin's fate before Ariane returns, if she ever does. So think on how Duran will look back on this moment this goodbye when he learns the result of when he last did this when he last said goodbye to his child well that one's died so now he's going to really really focus on this moment he probably will be glad that he stood up to hug her but he'll also probably regret sending her in the first place he does say for her to take care so we know the emotions are involved but he also says this this is our first quote of the day the fate of dawn goes with you daughter so we've really got that sense of the pressure on Ariane's shoulders now. And this sentence serves as the hype up that we normally get in George's first or early lines. In fairness to Ariane, she immediately recognises what we've just spoken about in terms of Duran's effort to stand. She knows what it is and what it means. And while she first highlights her strength and her pride in being Dornish, which will be extra important as she leaves her home borders, she also tells us straight up how she views this act by Duran. She gives this quote, Standing was an act of love. Standing was an act of faith. He believes in me. I will not fail him. Boom. Okay, so that's the exact kind of thing we were looking for back in dance, wasn't it? We saw, from an outward perspective, that Ariane had accepted Duran's speech at the end of her feast arc, and that they were on the same team. But there was one thing to see externally, it's quite another to have it laid bare for us by the POV herself. We saw it through Ario's eyes, that was fine, but we wanted to see it through Ariane's eyes, we wanted to experience it. And now we do. She is 100% bought in. These two are on the same level now. So it's very emotionally gratifying to see, given the strong rift that existed between the two during her feast chapters. She's completely aware of the pain and the effort that Duran has to give. She's completely aware of the symbolic gesture. Now that issue, that rift between them, that was very raw, very painful for Ariane throughout that book. If we had Duran's POV, no doubt we would have felt the same thing. 
To see parent and child at odds like that, especially over what boils down to a mere crossed wires, that was terrible. So we love it for both of them that they are able to reconcile and mend that bridge. Even if it would be terribly George-like to do that and then let tragedy strike either one of them, or both of them, soon after. Yeah, that sounds like George. Now that's just the emotional standpoint, but the practical is far more important overall. For all the complaints some have about Duran, or even about Ariane, especially in terms of end results, it can't be denied that they are a deadly duo working together. We've already seen examples of their respective skills, and that was when they were at Logheads. Now they are on the same team, we have that confirmed right at the beginning here. Again, we had a little peek of it in Dance. It was only by working together that they both separated and then sent off the Sand Snakes, and they managed to work Macella into their idea of delaying Sir Balin Swan via a dusty journey chasing Darkstar. The two of them are potent. Yes, they might not be physically together after this opening paragraph, but they are on the same page, and I look forward to seeing their skills having an even wider impact on the plot going forward. They could do a lot of damage. Before we move on ourselves, let's just revisit that internal thought from Ariane concerning her motivation. Back in Feast, it was mainly, if we're being honest, self-centred. She felt threatened and was moving to protect herself, and she literally thought the opposite of Duran believing in her. Now, she's moving with the confidence of a daughter backed by her prince of a father, and she's moving with the ingrained mission of doing this for him. It's determination, it's grit, and it's more solidifying for what we're expecting to see in this arc. Ariane is no gentle flower going out for a jaunt, she is on a mission. And of course, the other thing to note is that this internal thought now sounds remarkably like Quentin's used to, you know, before Rhaegal turned up the heat on him. So make of that what you will. Now we've got that initial establishment of the important relationship and what this chapter is actually going to involve out of the way, we now get on to essentially a roundup, a review of the details of this journey, starting of course with who is actually going. We'll see several times throughout this chapter, especially early on, the point is made to compare it to the last time that Ariane left town to go on that fateful mission. Case in point, right here. We have a line about her needing to travel in a large party rather than a small one because she's now acting on an official capacity and there has to be some consideration for look of the thing. Obviously, that's a complete opposite to last time when she was trying to get out quickly and quietly. The irony is that she's actually setting out in a group of seven, because of course she is, all the good journeys have to have seven, don't they? Especially in this world. And that's the exact number of people she travelled with last time, eventually. Sure, she started out just with her, Silver Santagar, Garen and Dre, but then she gained Darkstar, Eris Oakheart and Marcella. So there's actually a straight-on comparison between both journeys here, and the only difference is how it's starting out. But that was then, this is now. Who makes up Ariane's new, more official party? Well, let's list them for you here. We'll start with Sir Damon Sand, her sworn shield now, Ariane's sworn shield. He's the only one that we've met before from this party, because remember, he was Oberyn Martell's squire and he journeyed with him to King's Landing. He was even present for Oberyn's death, of course. In fact, he was the one who quickly got word south down to Nymeria Sand, so he actually had quite a large influence down on Sunspear. On his return to the city, Duran imprisoned young Damon for demanding the release of said Sand Snakes from their own imprisonment. Yet he was released in time to be present at the Dornish Feast in Dance, we've actually met him twice, even though he didn't have a speaking part there. So he's going to be clearly the most important member of this accompanying party, by far as well, it's not really close. Not only because, like I say, he's been promoted to Ariane's personal sworn shield, not even due to his personal history with Ariane, some of which we already know by this point, like his failed attempt to get permission from Duran to marry Ariane, and some we'll learn of in the chapter, but because he's also the other half to most of Ariane's most important conversations in this chapter as she contemplates the directions that she's taking. 
so we'll discuss much more of Damon as we go for sure. But who else is here? We have Sir Joss Hood and Sir Garibald Shells. They're a pair of young knights that we know nothing of, we've not met them before, except that they seem to be serious and straight-laced. You can tell they're a Duran pick, I think. They're the sensible, solid choice. We have Jane Ladybright, and we don't know much about her either, other than it's likely it's her mother, or maybe her aunt, who's in charge of coin at Sunspear. We have Nate the Maester, hilariously called Feathers, because of his responsibilities with the Ravens. And finally, we have a brand new Sand Snake for us to meet, Elia Sand. She's the oldest of the Ilaria Sands subsection of Oberyn's daughters at 14 years old, and she comes in second behind Damon for who's most involved out of this group. Like her elder sisters and father before her, Elia is a bit of a wild card, much more so than her assumed namesake in Elia Martell. I'm going to guess that's why she's got that name. I think you'll agree. So this Elia, Elia Sand, she's a jouster, and she's taken the lance as her weapon of choice because her older sisters, or half-sisters, they all have a weapon of choice, so so must she, because she's enamoured with her elders. She wants to be just like them, and she does a pretty good impression so far, it must be said. In Feast, she and the rest of Ilaria's bunch were also taken into custody under the guise that they couldn't be used by anyone else. This was Duran's choice, of course. But then not long after, they were sent to the water gardens instead. Elia apparently terrorised the pools in her time there. Now she intends to do the same in a much wider world, while also being a general annoyance for her cousin in Ariane. So yeah, we'll be talking about Alia a lot more as we go as well. The next comparison to the secret mission comes almost immediately. Back then, Ariane departed Sunspear going almost dead west, beside the Greenblood. Now, she and her new party are heading north, which is essentially the opposite from the west in terms of land routes for Sunspear. You can't go east, it's just sea. We've guessed before that Aereo Hotar would be responsible for showing us a brand new area of the very lightly unveiled dorm, we've not seen that much of it, and he likely will, but it turns out Ariane will at least show us some as we go for North Dawn now, or North East Dawn, that cross the parched plains because Ariane is headed for Ghost Hill, so we're also going to get our first non-sunspeared Dornish castle, which is pretty cool. You might remember, if you're really cool, a couple of months ago, or a few months ago now, I spoke on the Radio Westeros live streams about the potential of getting the politics of Dawn, the nobility, a lot more involved in wins, because they have that sense of simmering away. These are very proud people, very fiery people. They do seem like they've got something to say and that they are going to inject themselves into the plot. So we'll have to see if we're going to meet some of those type of people in the castle that we're going to visit. We'll have to wait until later in the chapter for that. But we're also told of the later plan, a ship across the Sea of Dawn, then up into the Stormlands and into the huge, important plot that is Aegon and John Collington and all those guys. So our anticipation is high, just an expectation for that, and we've got no idea how quickly that will come. You could be forgiven for thinking, especially thanks to this kind of review style of writing that we're getting in the beginning. We might even get there in this chapter. George has done that before, it could happen, we'll have to wait and see. I think the quick style of writing is actually intended to show us that Ariane is constantly thinking on her job, her mission, what she needs to do, what's coming next, which is proven by her mixing these thoughts on journey with advice from her father. The advice in this case is to correspond as much as possible, hence Feathers coming along with all his ravens, but only do that with facts and certainties. And I've got to say, I like Durant addressing this. Now it sounds obvious, doesn't it? Yeah, duh, only send me things that are true but it's more his highlighting of how much false information is floating around out there that I like. How confused the entire continent is because there's simply too much happening too fast out there. This society and its communication structure are they're not designed to be keeping up with this many massive, huge, unthinkable changes. That's been true from the first three books, but there's probably even more happening now. If you think like the average years before Game of Thrones, 
there wasn't much happening nationally. Stuff doesn't happen that quickly, not on average. But now we've had this big, huge burst. And it's, again, it's not just stuff happening. It's not knowing which stuff is happening and which is false. We've commented many times about how the logistics of this world, they just make such things so complicated. If you get a false report, well, that took ages to get to you. And even if it were true, everything probably has changed by the time you read it. Now you've got no way to verify anything that you've read in this letter, so you have to go of your hunch. You have to make a guess, a decision. So you do that, and you send out a reply. But that takes ages as well. And everything has probably changed again during the meantime. Your letter might not even get there, and you wouldn't know, would you? So it's just incredibly confusing and difficult, and that's in normal times. Now, with so much happening and so many reports, with people actively trying to lie and confuse and conceal themselves, it just makes it impossible to know what's going on. We've spoken about it in terms of the pink letter. We've spoken about it in terms of the Yunkai camp and how they'll do battle, their own communication system. Everything is unverified, and Duran knows that this fact-finding mission could only add more confusion if you let it. So I like him just being aware of that and at least doing what he can to try and combat it. Just for a bit more irony is that he recognises that false information is out there, but Ariane might be walking into one of, if not the, biggest lies of the entire series in Aegon. He says, go out there, find me some truth. Well, she might find the ultimate falsehood. And yes, as much of this chapter will be, this could also be applied to Daenerys as well. So much of what we're going to see here today is Targ versus Targ. We know that there's already copious rumours about Daenerys over in Essos. I think Winds is definitely the book where those are going to spread through Westeros as well. Probably annoying us in terms of how wrong they are and how quickly people will cling to them. Yes, that's going to be definitely frustrating. And Aegon will probably be a part of spreading a certain opinion about his supposed aunt. And maybe Ariane will end up being a part of that as well. She's going to hear plenty, I would imagine, once she actually meets Aegon. She's going to be told a certain thing. She's going to form a certain opinion. And actually, we're going to see some of that right at the very end of this chapter. So keep your eye out. Ariane is a little more certain of what's happening out there. She says, it's war. She believes it's already begun, it's not hard to see. Now it's hard for us to disagree, and it turns out that Ilaria Sand is absolutely on the same level as Ariane remembers back before her departure. Ilaria said she thinks this will all come to ruin, which seems a solid bet. That's great to hear from Ilaria again. She, she had that great, wise, impassioned moment in dance, and I wonder if she'll actually return to Paige at some point. I certainly hope so. She exists here, in the memory of this chapter, to explain how her Sand Snakes all the younger ones are being scattered to better survive the carnage. That's the quote. Just let that hit you. That's how bad Ilaria thinks it's going to be. She's not doing hyperbole when she tells Duran and Ariane this. She generally believes it. She's actually genuinely trying to cover her bets and lose the minimum amount of children by spreading them out, taking the average, playing the odds. Wow, I mean, that hits hard, doesn't it? I have to think so. And those are just children, remember? And you're thinking about, well, I'll stash one there and I'll stash one here and hopefully I'll lose as little as possible. That's how Ilaria's thinking. And again, she may well be right. So we're told here, in fact, where the younger sand snakes are going. Ilaria and the Reza, they're going to Hellholt, the home of House Ulla. That's where Ariane was originally intending to go with Marcella, you'll remember. That is where Ilaria's father lives. So they could definitely get very involved. They're definitely one of those fiery, impassioned Dornish houses. So it'll be interesting if anything comes of that. Meanwhile, Dorea, she is going to remain at the Water Gardens. And nearby will be Obella at Sunspear, where Elia, like we said, the eldest, is with Ariane. And apparently Elia was told when she's going on this journey that she is to go as a lady, not a lance. That's a cool line. I like that. It's mentioned very briefly that Elia is just entering the age of rebellion and starting to want to do things her own way. 
As we said a moment ago, she's starting to resemble her older half-sisters, or even Ariane herself in some ways, so we can suspect that Ariane will have to deal with that aspect of her cousin at some point on this journey, and it will probably be a reflective, growing up moment for Ariane in seeing what she used to be like and the format that her family seemed to follow. On top of that, she's going to be thinking on how they need to act now that they're off home turf, how you can't be messing around, so maybe there'll be some conflict between the two. We're going to see as we go. The fairly removed style of writing continues as we skip past two days of riding north to Ghost Hill. Whereas before, Ariane left with her best friends, she could see it as a fun adventure. That can't happen this time. This is not a party of friends, but of politics. She says she can't even connect with Elia because she's just still that too young. They're not quite on the same level. And even Damon Sand is the same for those aforementioned reasons. From earlier on, there's walls between those two as well. Although we will come to see those walls start to melt between the two, at least somewhat later on. But given that barrier for now around Ariane, she reflects on the friends she misses instead. She might be dedicated to the new mission, but she's still human. Those people on the previous journey, they weren't accomplices or tools, they were genuine friends and she genuinely misses them. And I must say, these are some of the most secure, real friendships that we get to see anywhere in the series, to be honest. And in that, we can draw another comparison to Quentin who shared similar relationships with Archibald and Jerris. We really focus on those relationships. They were proven time and again to be as real as you could get. Those guys were dedicated, absolutely dedicated to each other. It seems Ariane shared the same with her little group. So say what we will about Duran or the Martells in general, but they do make some of the strongest bonds in the series. I think that should be highlighted. So to have those kind of relationships ripped away from Ariane, especially as she enters this new world where she could really use them most, it hurts her deep, even with the belief that one of them did tell on her. And for me, that seems too on the nose, so I become ever more convinced that it wasn't one of the friends at all. That's my opinion. Maybe you have a different one. Do let me know. Not that Ariane blames any of them anyway, even if it was one of them who told. And that's important to note as well. She takes the brunt of it on herself, as she should, and she recognises how badly the plan failed, how it never would have succeeded, and the repercussions of such. She knows what she did. She knows she played the grandest part in taking her own friends away. It's her fault. Not only that, but in maiming Marcella. And although the acts of Aeris Hocart can hardly be pinned on Ariane, the situation in general can be. So this is a real moment of growing up that Ariane has done here, recognising the truth of what's occurred and owning up to it. That's a super important part of becoming an adult, that accountability. It's really key for her growth, and it seems to be a big payoff from this relationship with Duran. So I really like that. Of course, while she's already thinking back on the failed attempt, she has to focus on Aris. Her friends, they've always been around, but Aris himself was inextricably linked with this plot. That was the entire reason she got involved with him in the first place. And again, we see her own up to her mistakes of the past. She full-on admits that she was only ever making use of him that she was aware she toyed with him in a fashion, that she was aware that the scales of love were certainly not balanced between them, and she did it anyway. Now, in fairness, Aeris was a big old boy making his own decisions, but it's still important that Arian recognises her own part and what the toying of people can actually result in. It's real stuff. People can die. Now, she does admit that she liked him as well, which is important, but just not in the same way. He was a tool that had a use, and he died for it. She thought it was a game and she was wrong. So there's more growing up there, more maturing. And this would be super important for Ariane no matter the situation, even if she was just staying at home. But of course, it's even more important now, before she goes out into the world, to play the true game. That wasn't even the real version. That was like a warm-up. 
and it had dire consequences. Now we're getting to the big stage. And it's worth mentioning that she believes that Aerys was so guilty over his stained honour that he rode purposefully into Arya's long axe with the intent of dying. She put this theory forward in the Princess in the Tower chapter as well, where she first focused on her guilt of how she manipulated Aerys into that position that eventually killed him. Back at the time, I said that the last act was designed, in f at least in part, because he still wanted to impress Ariane. His white cloak was stained, it's true, and he thought he could win back his honour by protecting her, or possibly Marcello, it was never really that clear. I added that he was probably hoping to force a declaration of actual love from Ariane in that last moment, but didn't receive it. So perhaps there's elements of Ariane's theory that is true, but I think she's missing the main point, personally. Ariane continues her roundup of repercussions, reminding us of what each individual paid for her playing of the Game of Thrones. Marcella and Aerys are obvious, of course, but she reminds us specifically about her three friends, the ones who've had their entire lives completely changed forever for what boils down to a single day of bad decisions. They just went for a journey, and look what's happened. And even then, from their angle, they were only helping out a friend. Now, yes, they were old enough to know better, for sure, but it's still kind of amazing to think about. I know we spent quite a lot of time discussing these punishments when they were first told to us. You'll remember Dre and Garen, they've been sent off to an entirely continent over in Essos, and Garen perhaps into the path of danger as well, he's down in the, near the disputed lands. But we always definitely want to highlight Silver Santagar, who got the worst deal by a country mile. At least the other two, the two guys, only have terms to serve. They could come back at some point, or do whatever they wish, but Silver has been married off for life to Elden Estemont, someone probably half a century older to her and hundreds and hundreds of miles away on Greenstone, which is probably as fairly opposite to Dawn as you can get. She's gone, that's her life sentence, she's done. Or is she? Actually, perhaps not. Because in John Connington's chapters, we heard the report that Greenstone had been taken along with many other Stormland's castles. And John Connor set a heavy onus on taking highborn prisoners and bringing them across to him. So there is a possibility that maybe that will happen with the residents of Greenstone. Maybe the newlywed Mr. and Mrs. Estemont will be brought back to the mainland and we might get to see Silver again soon enough. It's even more possible that via meeting Aegon and Joncon, Arianne will therefore get to meet Silver again, her best friend, a reunion that would clearly, clearly mean so much to the Dornish princess. Will it mean the same to Silver? Perhaps it will. But maybe she'll blame Arianne and her foolish plan for this fate that she got sent away for, that she got punished for. Maybe she'll be angry. It's very, very possible. And that would be, obviously, the complete opposite. That would be very, very hard for Ariane to, to deal with and actually see up front. She might understand it, but it's still going to really tear her apart inside. Or maybe it'll be the opposite, and Silver will come and admit that she was the one who told, or that she knows who did. I don't think so, but it's possible. Consider also that Elden Estemont is considered ancient in this world. He's actually only about 70, but, you know. So if he is being brought to the mainland, it's possible that he dies on the journey, or he's killed by Aegon's forces for some reason, which would obviously free up Silver once more. I'm personally just convinced that Silver will return to the plot again in the future, and I'm personally hoping that she does get to reunite with her best friend, because I'd love to see the effect that has on Ariane. I'd just like her to have a companion of her own in this new arena in which she finds herself. Now, if Ariane's going to go through all her companions, then that inevitably does lead her to Darkstar, the one who hasn't had to pay anything, at least not yet. He got away, scot-free. She thinks back on his attack on Marcella, almost as if she still can't quite believe it really happened, or that someone could actually be capable of such a thing, just striking down a child like that. The acceptance of that act is another key realisation in what the game truly is, the type of lengths that people will go to for a cause or for themselves. Ariane names Darkstar her most grievous sin, and I must say I quite like sin as a descriptor for him. As Ariane will tell us in a moment, he's the tempter. 
He's the darkness wrapped up in a good-looking package. He's a child murderer. What Ariane fails to note is that her beloved Sans Saint cousins, or some of them anyway, would like to do their own share of child murdering, but she doesn't want to think about that. She claims that Darkstar changed her botched plot into something foul and bloody. Well, there's no denying that. That's literally true. But again, she's not seeing the whole picture. Ariane might have been acting with the main purpose of securing her own birthright, but she was also basically inciting a war. Sooner or later, it was always going to come to foulness and blood. Maybe not to her. Maybe not even to Marcella, although probably. And perhaps not even in front of her own eyes. Maybe she would have never had to see any blood. But some soldier somewhere would have had to pay for her decisions. That's a burden that Duran Martel has always been aware of. We've always been aware of as readers, having seen the repercussions. And now it's something Ariane is also thinking about. Still, it's important to re-establish Dark Stuff for the reader. We figure he will take on a larger role in wins that we'll probably get to see through Ario's POV. Again, I was lucky enough to discuss that on Radio Westeros' live stream. So George is making sure he gets some good focus here. And he links the plots together by Ariane thinking on the possibility of Obara and Ario maybe already having put an end to the man of living sin. But apparently, Damon Sand disagreed with such a notion at the end of their first night of travel. He thinks Obara might not be a match for Darkstar, nor Ario either, perhaps not even both of them together. Should that be what happens, we can't quite trust Obara yet, can we? Ariane, on the other hand, has supreme confidence in Ario Hotar. She's seen him in action, but Damon, no, he's unconvinced. Most interestingly, he tells us even Oberyn Martell himself knew that Gerald Dane was dangerous. If the Red Viper is giving someone else that label, then we should probably be taking attention. I think Oberyn would know. Damon even hints that Oberyn intended to get round to killing Darkstar at some point. The idea of which is insanely interesting, of course. How much would we pay to see that duel? Viper versus Viper, Dornish versus Dornish. Yes, please, sign us all up. I think we'd quite like that. But even more than that, it's just fascinating to learn further details about Oberyn his views and hopes and life in general. We got such a small amount of time with the guy and yet had so much hype built up in that same span, so out of all the characters taken too soon, he might be the one we wanted more of the most. And Damon can at least provide a little window for us, little sprinkling details to get our imaginations whirring like he's just done. He can colour in the profile of Oberyn Martell more fully than anyone aside from Duran or maybe Ilaria. Arguably, in some respects, he could do a better job than both of them. So that's absolutely something to look forward to in Damon's inclusion in these chapters. He's our new tether to the Taken Viper. That's very, very cool. We like Damon being around for that purpose. He gives us some more here. Oberyn apparently referred to Darkstar as poison. And again, Oberyn would know, wouldn't he? Ariane agrees. And this is where she reflects on how she was blinded to that in part because of his good looks. But disparages that as a weakness of a girl, whereas she is now a woman. She calls it a lesson learned. So we're seeing a lot of rungs being climbed on the maturity ladder by Ariane early on here because she's not trying to cover it up. She's not trying to excuse anything. She's owning up to things. She made a mistake. She's aware of it. She's going to do better next time. Of course, the irony in that is she might be about to run straight into another good-looking young guy who could be concealing yet more danger behind him in terms of Aegon. Yeah. We're back on the journey now, with Elia-san racing ahead and being all Oberynish in her wildness. Yet again, Ariane finds herself riding close to the one member of the party she knows best, Sir Damon. And Damon is apparently stealing glances at Ariane whenever he can, meaning she has to warn herself off going down that road. She has a mission. She is the heir to Dawn. It would not be proper. That's what she says to herself. We'll have to see how well that holds, won't we? Staying away from work colleagues has not been one of Ariane's strengths in the past. Will it be so now? To switch the subject, she asks Damon for information on John Connington, to which Damon relays the public story of an exiled lord dying from the drink. They briefly discuss the possibilities of identity. 
Maybe it's a son, maybe it's an imposter. Reminding us of what Duran said earlier about false information flying everywhere and no one knowing where they stand. Before Ariane unknowingly stumbles on an amazing guess of John Con only pretending to be dead for all those years because he was biding his time. Somewhat funnily, she compares him with her own father in terms of patience. I must say that's a good connection that I'd not thought of and it's absolutely true. Most importantly, she identifies that if this is the truth, then John Con is obviously a man dedicated to the cause. He's a planner. He's a smart man who will be difficult to deal with indeed. And Ariane constantly highlighting the roadblocks that might come up for her. It gives another keen sense of planning and dedication to the mission. This is 100% of her thoughts right now. Damon does what he can to fill her in on the biography that we're pretty well accustomed to now. He was Lord of Griffith's Roost, everything with Rhaegar, he had the hand shipped, the Battle of the Bells, and then his exile. Half a life summed up in a paragraph. For some, that would be enough, but Ariane needs to enter the arena armed with more. She wants to know what type of man he is. That would be all the better to make an effective game plan and ascertain the truth of what he claims, and therefore help Dawn decide on its most important decision in centuries. Ariane needs everything she can get to do that. What she's really doing is establishing whether her usual playbook will have any effect this time round, the type that she used on Aeris Oakheart. And it seems no, it won't. For all Damon appears to know, which is a fair bit, he can't comment on John Con having any sort of love life, obviously playing into what we assume about him and Rhaegar. So that means a change of tact for Ariane. She's going to have to rely on her wits alone, on her word and political smarts. Ariane has those skills, but does she have enough of them to fight the silent fight against John Connington? I think most of us would say yes, she's at least going to put her own dent into the political world, but you can see why she has the concern given the risk involved here. She hopes to prove herself, but she's still worried, which makes complete sense. With her mind so focused on John Connington, we're now privy to why, as Ariane shows us the letter that Duran received to kick off this new era in Ariane's life, this new storyline for the Winds of Winter, and the big decision that faces her family. Let me read it to you at length here. To Prince Duran of House Martel, you will remember me, I pray. I knew your sister well, and was a leal servant of your good brother. I grieve for them as you do. I did not die, no more than did your sister's son. To save his life we kept him hidden, but the time for hiding is done. A dragon has returned to Westeros to claim his birthright and seek vengeance for his father, and for the Princess Elia, his mother. In her name I turn to dawn. Do not forsake us. Signed, John Connington, Lord of Griffin's Roost, Hand of the True King. So again, we knew at the end of Dance that John Connington was coming, we knew he was going to get in touch with Duran, but now we're seeing the actual evidence. Now we're getting to the real meat of Ariane's chapter and the reason why her mind is so focused, why she is trying to gain every scrap of knowledge that she can and why Dawn currently balances on an edge. So let's go through what we've just read there. Obviously, the most important part comes first in John Connington claiming to be who he's claiming to be with the act of remembrance. Okay, that makes sense. But then the next line is pretty clever in terms of getting Durant on side. Bring up Elia first. Make that connection. John Connington, he knows that's the door to Durant's heart. In fairness, John isn't giving any fluff here. He's not going hyperbolic on his love for Elia and things like that, because we know from his chapters that that wouldn't be true. He didn't have anything against her per se, except maybe a decent slab of jealousy. Certainly he didn't wish for her eventual fate or anything remotely similar, but he did know her, which is what he says. So fair enough. Being a leal servant to Rhaegar, on the other hand, is probably putting it pretty lightly. As shown by the recent years of Jon Con's life, he'd do anything for Rhaegar. When he claims to grieve for them, I think we all know 99% of that grief is for Rhaegar and 1% for Elia, but we see the attempt to make that initial bridge. Hey man, we're on the same side. You liked your sister, I liked your sister, let's be friends. In the second paragraph, Jon continues to not mince words. He is as blunt as they come. Aegon is alive, he claims. 
He just comes right out of it, this massive, massive news that could change a continent, just says it right there. He was hidden for years to ensure his safety, but he returns now to take the throne, but also he does it in the name of Rhaegar and Elia. So, the smart thing again. Start the letter of Elia, end the letter of Elia. John claims it's because of her that they look to Dawn, and then he includes a call to action at the end. Help us, or you are forsaking, you are actively harming someone that you're related to, the remnant in this living world of your beloved sister. So overall, I've got to say, it's pretty smartly written by John Con here, and it is very, very much to the point. You'll note there's no mention of numbers or victories, aside from the implication that the title of Lord of Griffin's Roost gives, of course. He's not trying to impress Duran, he's not trying to persuade him of their chances for victory, he's trying to incite the emotional need for Duran to be part of this, to honour Elliot and her legacy, to come and help his nephew. Duran is a man of numbers and chances. He won't commit himself until victory is assured, but John wants to ally with him long before that. So he's just going to ignore that side of things entirely and only present the emotional slash duty side of things. So again, I say very smart from John Con. And he knows that by missing certain things out, Duran will have to come investigate. He'll have to get involved on some level, hence what Ariane is doing now. And actually, I suppose you should mention, it's probably smart to be quite straightforward in this letter because you don't want to be giving anything away should it be intercepted. But as Ariane tells us, there's a lot more missing from this letter than numbers or logistics. What about Daenerys? What about Quentin? Does Aegon have dragons too? It doesn't mention, does it? It's pretty important to know. We know that Jon knows nothing about Quentin. So, understandably, no, that's not going to be in the letter. He doesn't know all that much more about Daenerys, really, save for her fairly recent location, which Duran already knew. Even if Jon did, he'd be unlikely to want to mention her in this letter. It's something else to just ignore. We're trying to paint Aegon as the one true king. It says it right there, look. We want him to look like the only option. We don't want you to be thinking about other possibilities or other plans you've made. This is your one option, your one relative, focus on Aegon. But he also lets the imagination run wild. Maybe Daenerys is with us. Maybe we do have dragons. Whatever gets you out the door and across to our side. But the point is, Aegon, Aegon, Aegon. That's all John wants to run thinking. He knows what's going to work. He knows the mere hint of such a possibility, one that absolutely no one was expecting. I mean, Daenerys is enough of a turn-up for the books, isn't it? We'll get Duran thinking. Which it absolutely has, as Ariane's memory takes us back again to when Duran first received this letter. Whether there was another letter, or whether Duran just has his own spies at work, he knows more about this coming invasion than he did at the end of Dance. Most importantly, he knows no dragons have come. Which is a bit of a bummer. That was Quentin's job, to bring them home to ensure victory, and, supposedly, less casualties on their side by bringing a rocket launcher to the Conquer fight. He also knows it's the Golden Company who's come across. And no, they're absolutely nothing to sniff at. They could do major damage across Westeros. They'd have a decent crack at taking King's Landing, given all the current Lannister problems, but they couldn't take all seven kingdoms without help. John Collington knows that. Duran knows that. But Duran also knows that this claim will get at least some on board, just the mere stating that this is a Targaryen coming back. Many won't believe you, but there are some who will. They will have a chance, and he's being offered an inn on the ground floor. Based on that alone, it's too close to cool. Not knowing about the dragons, only having a fighter's chance, that doesn't sound much like Duran Martel. Hence, the highlighting of the connection. The ultimate question, is this real? He quotes in Ariane's memory here, Elia's son, I would weep for joy if some part of my sister had survived. But what proof do we have that this is Aegon? His voice broke when he said that. Where are the dragons? He asked. Where is Daenerys? And Ariane knew that he was really saying, Where is my son? As Duran tells us, if this is real, it's probably the best news he's heard in decades. It would change everything, and he would probably would risk it all, even all his many plans, to help Aegon. But he can't be sure, so he remains torn. 
He's filled with doubt because of the slow realisation that another of his grand plans might not have worked out, and it's one that he risked his son for. The dragons haven't arrived. Daenerys supposedly hasn't arrived. And though those are very concerning thoughts, the one really starting to grow in the back of his mind is the worry about Quentin. The worry that he's spent his son's life on something that's not even going to return. And we as readers know the tragedy of that because we know it's exactly what's happened. Quentin was sent into a situation he should never have been in. He did die trying to win something unwinnable for his father. He's not coming back. Daenerys, she probably will arrive at some point. She might even still come via dawn in one fashion or another, but Quentin is not. As we've discussed multiple times in the past, and again on Radio Westeros as well, the moment that Durand discovers the truth about Quentin is going to be catastrophically important for both him emotionally and for how he can now affect the plot going forward. That might be the moment that he just says, well, fuck it, I'm going all in. Maybe he just throws all of his plans away. Maybe he loses it. Maybe he takes on a much more sand snake way of thinking. Maybe he goes full on anti-Daenerys, depending on what he's been told. Whichever it is, emotionally, Duran will crumble. We know that's coming. Duran the man and Dawn the state can still affect the world in a myriad of ways. Ariane remembers the two Dornish hosts camped up in the Boneway and the Prince's Pass, waiting for word, poised to spring into proper Westeros and affect all that's going on there. For now, they are stalled, they're bored, they're likely losing men. But if word should come, they will still be a formidable fighting force that can change the path of fate, can change the plot of this book. And the pressure of all that, as we said at the beginning, lies with Ariane. She holds the power. If she sends the word dragon, those armies will march. Dawn will throw its hat full into the ring. But if she says war, they will wait. Dawn wants no part of war, only victory. For that, Duran is convinced they need dragons of one sort or another. And to continue our tabs on the larger Dornish nobility, it's Lord Ironwood and Lord Fowler, they're up there with those armies. So if Ariane does send the correct word and they do march, they will become fully involved in the war as well, and there's a great chance we'll get to meet them and get to know more about them. I still think that is going to be a thing in this book, much more visibility of the Dornish lords. To keep in that vein, we get to meet more of the Dornish top brass now, as we arrive at the northern shore of Dawn, marked by the castle known as Ghost Hill, home of the Tolans. So let's talk about some history of Ghost Hill, shall we? Because it's always fun to get to a new castle, isn't it? Some of this will be related to us later in the chapter, but to update you now, what we know of Ghost Hill's history is pretty much all related to the original Targaryen conquest, or the first Dornish war, we should call it really. Like the rest of Dawn, the Tolans played with the Targaryens. They disappeared into the dunes any time a dragon would appear in the sky. They were very annoying, they were very hard to kill, and they were very successful. The castle specifically was the site of one of the more embarrassing parts of the conquest for Aegon when the Conqueror faced down what he thought was the Tolan champion in single combat. After an easy victory, he found he had actually slain a simple fool instead of a warrior. At the same time, the Tolans and their people had gone, they disappeared again, and left Aegon to his embarrassment. And later on, again like most of the kingdom, when the Targaryens eventually left Dawn, Ghost Hill was immediately retaken by the Dornish, and then they were later burned by the fires of Vega Visenya. So we don't know a whole lot, but there's some cool stories to attach to this castle. And to go along with that is their sigil. A green dragon biting its own tail. That's a very, very interesting sigil, isn't it? The colouring, specifically, is a nod to their fool and that historical note that I just gave you there. Yeah, you don't see many houses giving nods to their fools, do you? We'll actually come back to the sigil a little bit later on because we will get some explanation about it from the Tolans themselves, so just keep that in mind for now. 
We've barely heard anything of House Toland from the text yet, so this is very much new ground for us, new people we're meeting. The name itself has only come up twice, and both of those in Feast. Once when Ariane mentions the sigil to Eris Oakheart, and once when Doran mentions that Lady Nymella Toland was one of the nobles that was delaying Baden Swan as he made his way to Sunspear. In fact, Lady Nymella is at the feast where they welcome Sir Baden Swan, she just doesn't talk. So does all that hint that the Tolans are loyalists still, or merely that they are dutiful? You would perhaps lean to the former as they're being included as part of this trip, but we'll maybe talk about that again a little bit later when we meet them. Certainly the atmosphere is one of welcoming on the approach. The castle gates are open and Nymella has sent out her eldest daughter, Elena, to meet her visitors. And George paints quite the image of Elena. Another strong woman of dawn, this one with a blaze of bright red hair, which you probably don't see that often here. She seems to be Ariane's contemporary in other ways as well. The two not only know each other, but are able to laugh together as they decide to race back to the castle gates. Yes, yeah, not so very different from what Sansa and Miranda did a couple of weeks ago up at the Gates of the Moon, is it? Much like it was for Sansa, in fact, this is a rare moment for Ariane of being able to let go and have some fun, even if only for a few minutes. Okay, yes, we've talked about maturing and, and growing older, but let's release that just for a few seconds and have some fun. Ariane and Valena probably paint quite the picture again as they race their steeds towards the castle, and it looks as though they're pretty evenly matched before Eliasand roars out of third place, passes them both, and crosses the finish line for the win. Valena is most impressed by this apparent half-horse, half-girl, giving us echoes of what people have told us about Lyanna Stark before, while young Elia, probably very happy with the impression she's made, also gets to announce herself as Lady Lance. Yeah, I like that name. I did mention this in the live stream, but I think Asher agreed with me. Elia is probably my favourite out of all new characters, brand new characters that we get in these preview chapters. She's cool. She's got spirit. She's obviously got skill. She is riding into a dangerous situation. We know that, but I'm hoping she comes out okay because, yeah, she's definitely my favourite. And while she's talking about this nickname, well, Ariane muses that Oberyn himself might have given his daughter that moniker, which does sound quite like him, to be fair. In the way that older children have always dealt with slightly younger children since the dawn of time, Elia's success is rewarded with having to do the work that the elder children don't want to. She's got to look after the horses. Though at the same time, Velena mentions that Elia also fancies herself as a girl jouster, again making us think of Lyanna, depending on what you think about the Knight of the Laughing Tree. I wonder if there's any chance we'll actually get to see Elia in action at any point, actually do the jousting. It's hard to imagine, but fingers crossed. The Vale, they're still running tournaments, why can't we? In fact, maybe a victorious Aegon when he takes the Iron Throne will sneak one in in his honour. In fact, the more and more I think about that, the more and more likely I think it is. As we discussed on the last Scraps and Scrolls, tournaments are brilliant ways of gathering everyone together, getting them on side doing the schmoozing, doing everything else, getting your political deals in. Aegon slash John Connington slash Varys, they're really going to want some opportunities to do that. They need a whole continent, basically, to come and swear them fealty. Well, a tournament would be an excellent way to do that, wouldn't it? That is a strict announcement to the world that you're here, you've won. Come and look at how we've done it. Come and look at all our success. Come and watch Aegon wear the crown or wield Blackfire or whatever he's got. That seems to make a lot of sense for me. And thematically, yeah, that sits right because it would be like a little bookend, wouldn't it? All the way back to the hands turning. We could see the difference. Who survived? Who hasn't? Before Daenerys comes along and maybe everything really goes to cinders. So maybe Eliasand will get to show off, or Lady Lance, we should call her, will get to show off in that tournament. It's possible. We meet the other two members of House Tulland that night in the welcoming feast. Ariane first mentions Tiora, the younger daughter, who is apparently the complete opposite of her elder sister, both in terms of looks and personality. 
aside from the red hair that lives on throughout. Tiora is shy, she does not engage, and yet we might find her to be the most interesting of all three in a little bit. Before that comes Lady Nymella herself, telling of the rumours coming to them from across the Sea of Dawn, the news of invasion. First, they thought it to be the usual pirates and raiders, so no big deal, business as usual. But then the truth began to leak out about John Connington and the Golden Company, which does show that John's earlier plans of concealment are not watertight, unless maybe he has begun to relax them himself since then. Whichever the case, the Tolans are well informed about what's been happening to their neighbours to the north. News of Griffin's Roost's fall has spread, along with that of Rainhouse, Crow's Nest, Mistwood, Tuff and Greenstone. Just to remind you here, what did we already know about from Dance? Well, we knew that Rainhouse, home of House Wild, was being marched on by Laswell Peak. Crow's Nest, which is home of House Morrigan, was being attacked by Sir Tristan Rivers. And Mistwood, home of House Mertens, well, we don't know exactly who was marching there, but we know it was a target, the same as we already know about Tarf. And don't forget what we mentioned earlier about the possibility of Silver Santagava turning to the plot, because we know Greenstone has been taken, the Estamonts have been taken. So Ariane wonders why raiders or warriors would want to take little old Greenstone, ignoring the idea that everywhere is being taken. As Velena tells her, essentially all of Cape Wrath has now under John Connington's control, or Aegon's control. Half the Stormlands nearly, a toehold has been established. This is no raid, it's a full-scale invasion, and the coastal castles of the Stormlands are not the primary target, it's just the beginning. Perhaps more interestingly, there is talk of elephants in the Rainwood. Yeah, that's the kind of thing we want to hear. Where are our elephants? That gets us interested, doesn't it? We were hoping in John Con's chapters that we'd get to see them at some point. We're very keen to actually see them in action, and it seems like we will sometime later. So yeah, we're pretty certain about that now. Ariane thinks people, though, are mixing up their Savras pieces, and double-checks that it's not dragons people are seeing in the Rainwood. Lady Nymelet remains firm. It's big, heavy things on the ground, not fiery things in the sky. Some of that we knew pieces of, but then Velena mentions that there are krakens off the broken arm, as in the actual, physical krakens, pulling down ships because the blood of bodies in the water is drawing them to the surface. Hmm, doesn't that sound familiar? That sounds exactly like what we thought might happen over at Old Town thanks to Euron. Sacrifices into the water, raise the krakens, utterly destroy a bunch of ships or a massive city. So why are we hearing about it here, off the broken arm by the stepstones on the other side of Westeros? Is it perhaps a sign that Euron actually has gone east in pursuit of Victarion, like was previously suggested at one point? It could be. The timing of these chapters is ever up in the air, but if so, he is pretty far behind, unless he's waiting off the broken arm on the stepstones for Victarion's return. Possible. Perhaps more clues will come when we get to cover the Forsaken, but it definitely gets you thinking. Specifically on the bodies in the water. Why are there bodies washing up on the shores of Tolanlands? Unless, again, the timing is tricking us and there's already been some kind of naval battle that we're now seeing the remnants of. It is entirely possible. Or maybe reports are confused. Maybe Velena is actually being told of proper ironborn, not real krakens. Maybe it's Euron. Maybe it's the remnants of Victarion's fleet that were left behind by the storms. They could have returned to Westeros. She does mention that they've heard about ironborn reavers in the Narrow Sea, so very, very possible. It seems that the Narrow Sea is a hive of activity, even more so than usual. We get a sleuth of information about what is happening in its southern section. First off, we discover that Orain Waters, Rhaegar lookalike competitor, has set him up in a place called Torturer's Deep. It seems like he really was the one for Cersei, doesn't it? She'd do well there, Torturer's Deep. Unfortunately, that's the cool name. The rubbish name is the one he's given himself. Rather unimaginatively, he's taken the title The Lord of the Waters. 
I say rubbish nickname, rubbish title. Sounds like a, a bladder issue to me. But skill for nicknames aside, he does have a fleet of actual proper warships at his disposal and there are very very few fleets that could actually pose a problem to him at this point meaning he's going to be able to do pretty much what he wants around the stepstones he's going to be a problem that i'm convinced will yet return to the plot later on whether that's when danny comes west or in some other plot he's he's got to be coming back doesn't he you don't waste a fleet like that you would think and there's more. Apparently, since the Redwine fleet passed back through the Stepstones on their way to the Reach, there's been all sorts of ships being seen. Now, first things first, that confirms for us that the Redwine fleet has got that far. They should be well on their way to Old Town by now, although we also did hear the same at the very end of Dance. But what does it mean for Euron? Is he there waiting for them? Has he swung really far south to avoid them? Or has he got out past the Stepstones already? Maybe they've even clashed and these are their bodies washing up. We don't know, but we're very keen to find out. Regardless, the Tolans have seen the sales of Merman, Volantines, Lysini, and the aforementioned Ironborn. Many of them have been landing on Cape Wrath, so this area is just as busy as anything. Now as for the makeup of these ships, well it is puzzling. Merman and Lysini, that's not that confusing, they'd be in the narrow sea a lot anyway. It's just what they are doing in the Sea of Dawn that messes people up. Perhaps they're going out of their way to avoid something, like pirate kings, or krakens, or something else. But then why are they landing? When you add in Volantines, plus the Ironborn, it's easy to leap ahead and say, well actually, this sounds a bit like the makeup of Danny's fleet that she, assumedly, would eventually have. Maybe she's become friends of the Mirish and Lysini on the way, but no, the timing simply doesn't add up on that, I don't think. Wishful as we ever are. Besides, we must remember that it was Volantine chips that took the Golden Company across in the first place, so they might just be seeing those leave for home. But the others remain confusing. There are ships everywhere, confusion everywhere, danger everywhere. And remember, one small ship will carry Ariane across a wildly unknowable stretch of water now, so the tension and drama of the chapter is increased. Ariane's not worried about herself, however. She's thinking about what all this means in terms of Quentin, the eternal Quentin question. And like Durant, the Quentin question will be the permanent backboard to her thoughts. She will relate nearly everything back to it, trying to puzzle out what each piece of news means for chances of her brother and, therefore, Daenerys. She does not think any of these ships can be signs for either of them. If Quentin had been successful, he would have brought Danny to Dawn, she figures, exposing how much she is underestimating Daenerys' command over her own life and overestimating how much sway Quentin would have ever had over her. I wonder if Ariane will live long enough to be corrected about what kind of person Daenerys actually is. I hope so. Lady Nymella, understandably, would like some direction from the top brass on this subject. If all these ships, under whoever's command, that doesn't really matter, if they're landing an invasion force on the Stormlands, and what is to stop some of them from turning around and doing the exact same to Dawn? They only have to literally do a 90 degree turn to come straight for Ghost Hill, a weakly defended Ghost Hill, because all of their fighting strength has been sent off to the Boneway to do some much needed waiting, apparently. This is a problem we've seen all over Westeros, to be honest, but probably most strongly with the River Lords in the War of the Five Kings. At what point do you abandon the overall strategic point of your liege lord and a war as well to go home and look after your own instead? You do have a duty to do, you do have people to protect. We remember that this is something that Rob had to deal with with all the River Lords. So while Lady Tola might be loyal and obedient, there might also be a hint of frustration here. To her, it seems like she's being left exposed for her good behaviour, and she doesn't even know why. Why are they all up there waiting in the bone way? Why can't she recall her warriors? And this is a major disadvantage of Duran's shadowy approach. If his bannermen have no idea why they are doing certain things, well, blind faith can only take you so far, especially if there are sails on the horizon. Just keep that in mind for later when we have a little bit more discussion on the wider political scope of uh, the political scene of Dawn right now. 
In the meantime, both Damon and Ariane move quickly to stem this flow of thinking, however. If Lady Toland does recall her men, however much they are needed, then everyone will start doing it. Again, like we saw in the Riverlands, Dawn might find itself without a massed fighting force just when it needs one the most. And consider the geography of Dawn as well. It is likely much harder for them to amass troops than it is for most kingdoms. If everyone goes home, it's going to be a long time before they get them all back. Though it is worth noting that Ariane thinks that if each of them did go home, they'd only be waiting for an enemy who might or might not ever come. Okay, yes, that is true. But what does she think they are doing up in the Boneway in the Prince's Pass right now? They're waiting for an enemy, for a march order rather, that might or might not come. So it's exactly the same. Ariane tries to defuse all this by pointing out that this is exactly what her mission is for. She's going to go across, she's going to ascertain the danger, and whether these newbies might be friend or foe, because unknown to everyone but the Martells, they might actually be far more than friend. And then we'll know what to do with the fighting force. But this is where the third Tolan enters the conversation. It was then that pasty, pudgy Tiora raised her eyes from the cream cakes on her plate. It is dragons. Unsurprisingly, the girl is dismissed by pretty much everyone. Her sister is scornful. Her mother blames it on those cream cakes. The maester, Toman, he's involved in some way. Even Ariane hands it off as just something about being that young. But not us readers, oh no, because there's more. Tiora says she knows this because of her dreams. Let's give you the quote. Tiora gave a tiny nod, chin trembling. They were dancing, in my dream, and everywhere the dragons danced, the people died. There you go. That's a boom if we ever heard one. A screaming prospect for line of the chapter. Dragons are coming, says Tiora. Dragons are coming, we know as readers, or we mightily suspect at least. Whether Tiora is being symbolic and referring to Targaryens and Daenerys and Aegon, or whether she's being physical and is talking about the three actual dragons, well it almost doesn't matter, does it? I just love how many layers it actually does work on. Because whether it is Aegon versus Danny, whether it is physical dragon fights, I think what Tiora is actually concentrating on is the fallout that the people, the small folk, or really everyone, will suffer because of it. That's very much the point of the series after all. We've said that a thousand million times, that this is about what war can do to the general person. And if we think we've seen it bad through everything that's happened in the Riverlands or elsewhere, everything we saw in Feast, well, just imagine if you add dragons into the mix, I think what Tiora is saying is it's going to be much, much, much worse. What she's saying is there's going to be a clash and the people are going to die. It just so happens that she's doing it by all but naming both the last book and A Terrible War, where Targaryen fought Targaryen and Dragon fought Dragon before, and yes, a hell of a lot of people died. She's saying that's coming again. Perhaps this means Aegon gets a dragon, maybe Victarion, or Euron, or someone else to oppose whichever remains to Daenerys. Or maybe it is, like I say, Aegon versus Daenerys, the second dance that we've all been expecting. We don't need to rehash it too much here, we know the basic idea. Daenerys will want what's hers, what she's spent her whole life aiming towards, especially if someone plants the idea that Aegon is fake in her mind. Let's not forget that, I don't think we talk about it often enough. She's going to be annoyed plenty, even if she thinks Aegon's real, but if someone whispers in her ear, and there's going to be plenty of people to do that whispering, that he's not real, that he's a fake, well, she's going to go for the throne even harder, isn't she? Either way, it's going to be confusing for her. But when she arrives, Aegon will already be established, probably, as the saviour who came in and who's sorting Westeros out and is the true heir. Daenerys, meanwhile, will probably be painted as a villain, a jealous relative come to take what their noble prince has done for them. Aegon's side will do anything to keep the throne they've spent years and years working in secret for, especially if they buy their own tales about this being best for the realm. So, it will get bloody. More than bloody. It will get fiery and bloody. And, like we say, as they always have, it will be the people who will suffer. Except where we normally see just swords, 
that will be joined by Dragon Breath this time around, and the devastation will likely be on a scale hitherto unseen. We have been expecting it. There's more than enough seeds, and it makes sense narratively. Even this expectation of death from Tiora really fits in. Okay, sure, she says what these dreams are telling her. Everyone does a bit of the Bran Maester Lewin thing of being like, yeah, okay, sure, sure, whatever you want. We're not going to believe you, but we know... It really hits a lot of the marks we've discussed a thousand times about potential of war, what, what Daenerys will want, what she'll do to get it, and also, not only that, but the danger of dragons and the wielding of magic slash unnatural powers, as well as the pure stupidity of war itself and fighting for the crown. How someone is very, very likely going to end up being king or queen of the ashes, and how ultimately the race to get a hold of the throne will destroy it. We're all waiting for that to happen, and here is Tiora Toland, perhaps channeling Danny's own ancestor in her ability to foresee things. We talked about that on the live stream quite a lot. That's a very real possibility. There's other possibilities as well. I won't repeat them for you, but it's interesting, isn't it? And mine was personally that maybe she has a touch of the green sight here, a thousand miles from the neck or the north. That'd just be cool, I think, if we saw it at both ends of Westeros. And it's plenty possible, isn't it? We've got no idea. However Tiora came by the ability, we absolutely have to stand up and take notice as readers. And really, Ariane should do the same, but she's not. It does sound like a weird story from a preteen, but weird things are happening of late and everything matters. You should be bearing this in mind, just in case. Unfortunately, Tiora runs off at everyone else's dismissal of her dreams. One day, she'll be proven right, although I doubt it's going to bring her much satisfaction. In her wake, Sir Damon continues the conversation of dragons, ever so much the theme now in our southern central Westeros plot, which would have seemed amazingly weird to say in earlier books, and he does it by bringing up that Toland sigil. Velena tells us that he chose the new sigil upon the conquest because Aegon never conquered Ghost Hill. Like much of Dawn, they would employ that common tactic of melting away, disappearing into the sands, and coming at the Targaryen forces in secret. So the sigil, like we discussed a little bit earlier, is supposed to represent the frustration and ultimate failure of the dragons. Hmm, timely to bring that up, isn't it? The thing that stucks out to me the most, and I didn't mention this to Aziz and the others, I think, is I'm very surprised that this sigil was allowed to continue after the fact, especially in much, much later years, when, I don't know, you had a Maegor or a King Aegon IV, or when the two families joined, when the two realms finally joined, that you're allowed to have this sigil that everyone knows is basically like a call-out of the Targaryens. You'd think one of the kings would have been like, let's not have that, shall we? That seems quite bad for propaganda for business let's have them change that back but obviously not they've kept at it which probably speaks to the dawnish defiance that's an important thing for us to talk about you can see right here nymela adds that the tolans did many brave deeds during their times and that they remember them still both on paper and in their hearts that defiance of the dragons it hasn't gone anywhere for a lot of dawnish families even with the fact that yes they did end up joining with the targaryens later on or more specifically the martels did there is a distinct difference you have to remember you have to wonder if George is recovering this much-covered history, specifically because Ziora has brought up dragons and the devastation they can bring. We figure much of that to be located at King's Landing, but who's to say that Ghost Hill will not have to defend themselves against Dragonflame once again, and will they have the same success if they do? Maybe, maybe not. The Feast with the Tolans doesn't do anything to set Ariane's mind straight. Later that night, she wanders the battlements of Ghost Hill, looking over a moonlit sea. It's quite the scene, in all honesty, George paints a picture for us. It's much like another moonlit scene we once saw with Asher all the way up to Ten Towers, because this section also takes on a trace element of romance when Damon Sand joins Ariane, perhaps sensing the restlessness of her mind. Unlike Asher, however, Ariane doesn't put a knife to anyone's throat, which is a shame, because Asher's always cool when she does that. 
Damon, we've mentioned slightly before, serves two main purposes in this chapter, and that's ignoring his being a window to Oberyn, like we also talked about. Chiefly, he's a sounding board, Damon's sounding board, someone for Ariane to wonder aloud to who can repeat back general and background information about these specific topics. But he's also a subject of wonder to Ariane. He perhaps represents the other path, the one not taken. These two have a history, but now they have a present as well. And though Ariane's mind can keep the two separate, her heart has a slightly harder time. Again, she considers who Damon has grown into as a young man. He's handsome, he's dashing, and as she looks at his smile, there's still enough of his old self in there to make her genuinely like him. This is not the mere fondness she had for Sir Eris, no, this is something much deeper. Perhaps if she didn't want to play the game, or perhaps, more importantly, if there wasn't such a deep need for game playing right at this moment, if there wasn't war and invasion and all these other things, then maybe there would have been a chance for a different future between them. I think Ariane is lamenting that slightly here. Of course, even in peacetime there would have been difficulties with travelling that road. Ariane would still be heir of Dawn. Her husband would still be expected to be someone of political worth, not a bastard. But then again, taking a paramour is always an option in these lands. Her uncle did it with Ilaria, remember? Her own father married someone from halfway across the world, so it's not such an impossible dream, is it? It's also fairly important when Ariane thinks on how valuable he might be in other ways. She names him as one of the best swords in Dawn, and comes to that conclusion because he learnt from one of the best in Oberyn Martell. That's a pretty good point that I'd not considered, to be honest. I really doubt Oberyn is going to be taking on any squires who aren't top of the range. So that further cements the idea that Damon could be very, very important going forward in the story. Maybe saving Ariane, maybe fighting for Ariane, whatever it might be. Of course, she also does note that Damon and Oberyn might have been lovers as well. There is that rumour, which would perhaps complicate any rekindling of a relationship between Damon and herself, but she can't confirm those rumours either way. Their own history takes precedent. Ariane is a sexual person, we know that, and the majority of that world began with Damon right back in the day. It still holds a place in her heart, and in this moment of confusion and stress, she even extends the invitation to perhaps distract them both for a little while. Damon rejects the idea, pretty straightforwardly as well. As we've seen from several bastards in the series, they can get a bit annoyed at not being chosen as a partner because of their birth status, which is fair enough, you would be pissed, wouldn't you? And we can see how much it must still bother him because he turns down Ariane of all people in a setting such as this. And it's worth bearing in mind that that's two in a row now for Ariane where she's kind of struck out. She tried it with Sir Balin Swan back in Dance, no take. She tried it with Damon, no take. Hmm, that's a pretty big part of Ariane's personality and her skill set, so she might be looking for some, some reassurance, some boosting of the ego later in this book. We'll have to look for that. For now, though, she takes it on the chin and she returns Damon to his other purpose, the sounding board. But before we move on, we should wonder if this unrequited love or attraction will spring into more relevance later on. Ariane is on her way to meet a young king, after all. We know from John Con chapters that marriage might be on the cards here, so will that inspire jealousy at any point from Damon? Will the two of them give in to temptation and break a betrothal or similar? She's already mentioned that the pretty boys can get her in trouble, so I think there's plenty of possibilities for that later down the line. Just keep an eye out. But back to more important topics. Ariane comes back to the question of the day. For her and all of Westeros, could this actually be Aegon? Damon sticks to the historical story for his opinion. Aegon died. This is a fake and nothing more, he says. It's pretty hard to argue with. Thousands will take the same approach. And that's just people who've even heard the story. What about those who were closer to the action? What about those who saw the bodies presented before Robert? Damon assumes it's just someone's scheme to earn some extra money, and it really does sound like that in terms of logic or likelihood. But it's the chance, isn't it? This one slim hope that if it maybe is true, then it changes everything, especially in the heart of Duran Martell, which Ariane is aware of, but Damon probes further about. He says, what do you think of the potential Ariane? What do you think? 
What he actually asks is who Ariane wants Aegon to be, but what she answers is more concerned with what she believes to be more likely, or more to the point, the fact that she'll have no way of knowing. She deflects to the same worries as before. Why is it this guy who's returning instead of Daenerys and Quentin? I think perhaps there is some unspoken word here, a possibility that Ariane is tiptoeing around. Has Aegon arrived because he's already beat out Daenerys? Is she dead or defeated? And did Quentin get caught up in that and then pay the ultimate price? Worse, when she speaks of the want for her brother, Damon manages to cast doubt on that as well, just as he exits the scene. And this is why we must worry about what Damon could do once they're in Aegon's court, because he absolutely knows how to get into Arianne's head. Plus, he knows the truth of Danny and Quentin, which is very important information that could have a variety of uses. She tells herself this is folly, though, that that was old Arianne who had the rivalry with her brother, not new Arianne, who has finally been given the whole picture. She no longer has to resent Quentin or worry about what he's up to. They'll both get their own thing. There's no need for a rivalry, she says. She'll get Dawn, Quentin gets Danny, although that's not a perfect result, is it? Because he'd still be above her, but still, it's better than before. Of course, we know that Quentin actually got toasted, and it's Ariane who's much more likely to be the royal consort, but she is not to know that yet. And so she tiptoes around another issue that she's trying to not let bother her. There is no Daenerys. There's no Quentin yet either, but suppose he does return without a queen. Does that mean she has to go back to watching her back for a sign of losing what's hers? Again, we know it's not going to be an issue. And even if Quentin was alive, through our time with him, we know he'd have no such desire. But her insecurities can convince her of the opposite, so she's just not addressing the issue at all right now. Instead, she thinks back on her youth, when she would gaze at the portrait of the old Daenerys that came to dawn, allowing for George to point out some of his own irony with this quote. A hundred years ago, Daenerys Targaryen came to dawn to make a peace. Now another comes to make a war, and my brother will be her king and consort. King Quentin, why did that sound so silly? Yes, that does lead her directly to some good old-fashioned Quentin bashing. She'd get on well with Sebastian, wouldn't she? You can see why Quentin had some self-esteem issues as Arianne goes through what she thinks are his many physical failings in a paragraph she'll probably feel very guilty about when news of his fate finally reaches her. It's mainly a repeat of what we were told in Dan's. Quentin, for all the good aspects of him that we saw, just doesn't have the charisma, the special stuff needed to either win a dragon queen or ride a dragon himself. This is true, we must agree with the assessment, especially on the riding part, that didn't go well, did it? No, it was never going to happen, and even Ariane thinks that from the other side of the world, so we're getting a lot of confirmation for ideas put forward by Dance. But it also puts forward another subject to be ignored, maybe Quentin simply failed. Maybe the Dragon Queen did not want him and stayed put. Or worse, maybe she married someone else and will come as a rival if she comes at all. It has been way too readily accepted that Quentin would eventually be successful. There doesn't seem to have been a lot of thought given over to a contingency plan, something Ariane obviously doesn't want to admit right now, and something apparently Duran wasn't really hot on either. She announces to the Moonlit Sea that she does love her brother despite those flaws and no matter what Sir Damon says, but then she immediately admits that love is more just for his position as her brother than it is for him as a person because she doesn't know that person. Thanks to the requirements of their position, they've just been kept apart, doing other things, being used as Duran's tools. The Starks are the outliers we must remember. It's rare for the other big families to have relationships even approaching what we saw from those siblings, and Duran certainly did not give his children that opportunity. In Quentin's case, while well, he was used to pay a debt, as Ariane reminds us of the history between Houses Martell and Ironwood. Specifically, Oberyn killed old Lord Edgar Ironwood in a duel. To appease the Ironwoods, a major house that was more powerful than the Martells prior to Nymeria, Oberyn went into unofficial exile, and Quentin was handed over, Hence, how he wound up with the friendships that we saw in Dance, but how he also ended up estranged from Ariane. It's a lot of dancing on the strings of those who've come before, isn't it? Just as Tyrion likes to remind us. Ariane, meanwhile, was left behind, so she formed her own friend group with the Sand Snakes, or those we saw on her previous Queenmaker plot. 
The Sand Snakes, though, they were obviously not fond of those who exiled their father, the Ironwoods, which they unfortunately lumped Quentin in with, which is not really fair. But thus, brother and sister never had the opportunity to bond in any sort of way. It's a sad tale, made all the sadder now that there is no chance to reconcile that fact. Still, she tells herself that she loves him anyway and doesn't wish him any harm, at least while she thinks such a thing wouldn't steal from her. And in fairness, I do believe her for now. And here we say goodbye to Ghost Hill and these pretty interesting Tolans as it's time to sail the dangerous waters of the Sea of Dawn. They go aboard the Peregrine and they're there for a day and a night. Miraculously, they manage to avoid both enemy and storm, even if a few of them aren't so comfy on the trip. All they really encounter is some bad behaviour, I guess you'd call it, from Elia Sand. That's what Ariane would call it, and maybe even that's a bit of a stretch. It's more like Elia just standing up for who she is, especially in terms of being allowed to joust but Ariane still ends up sending her below for bad manners. I think it's more the fact that she's already dancing around people years older than herself. Yep, she's a favourite of mine. I expect her to be a favourite of yours pretty soon as well. Savas makes a return to the stage now to link us up with Tyrion's chapter you'll remember from weeks ago, but fortunately Ariane's game has not improved. Maybe she should have practised more up in the uh, spear tower there. Apparently it's because she relies too much on her dragon, which we can easily link up to a possibly upcoming pitfall that she believes in Aegon too much. We discussed that quite a lot on the live stream. Some fairly upfront symbolism there. I made the case at the time, but that perhaps this talk of not looking at all the pieces is another hint of not looking what's behind you in terms of the broiling Dornish, the possibility that something could be going on there. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Could be one, could be the other, could be both. In the meantime, well, Ariane, she's not bothered about playing Zavas. Instead, there's a bit more flirting, a bit more frustration also with Damon. And yes, I guess it is a valid question why Duran sent Damon with her knowing their history as he does maybe it is just because he knows he's the best sword left and he wants protection for Ariane at the end of the day that'd be fair enough wouldn't it so she abandons that game and returns to her favorite pastime getting Damon Sand to relate to her something the readers already know the majority of she really does want to cover the whole Targaryen scope in this chapter doesn't she so this time she asks about Viserys as if Damon should know anything about him more than anyone else Damon says as much that he's probably not the one to ask. So Ariane fills in her own gaps about what Duran told her in Feast about the old pact, the one that they originally switched from when Ariane would be bride and Quentin prince. That deal ended back in Game of Thrones because of Viserys' death on the Dothraki Sea, the one that came in the most painful of ways. It's still well, awful to think about even if it was Viserys. And Ariane asks, why? Why did he meet that end? Why was it so painful? Why did it happen in the first place? And what part did Daenerys have in it? Why did she let it happen? Ariana asks. And here's the dodgy part. This is where we have to start wondering. We start getting annoyed because this is the kind of thing that is going to happen all over Westeros. People hearing things about Daenerys, people never getting the whole story or getting all the facts about Daenerys and leaping to conclusions that are not fair and that will probably be coloured in quite well by Aegon and his team. In this instance, well, Ariane projects her own relationship with Quentin and her own worries onto that wildly, wildly different situation. She thinks, ah, well, maybe she did it on purpose because she wanted to be top dog or she didn't want to lose what was hers or whatever else. Now, we know that's just completely incorrect. Daenerys gave Viserys a billion more chances than he ever deserved. She was abused by him, manipulated by him, all these other terrible things, and she still stuck by him till the end. She still gave him almost every opportunity to repent and save himself, basically. Viserys refused. He brought his fate upon himself, but that's not what the people are going to hear. So she starts putting rumour with rumour. She highlights, well, this is Aerys, the Mad King's daughter. Well, she's a bit like him. How do we know? And the chapter ends with this quote from Sir Damon, who says, We cannot know. We can only hope. So it's not good. We don't like that. It does frustrate us because we know it's just going to be asked over and over again. We've seen it already. 
It's been spreading across Essos. We saw that in dance. All these rumours, some of which are just, you know, the bathing in blood and killing any lover and all these things, obviously ridiculous. But even the ones closer to the truth, or at least, like, based in fact about Khal Drogo, about the envoys and stuff like that, we know it's just not as presented. We know it's slander designed to weaken Daenerys as a political figure, trying to rid her of any support. It looks like the same thing is going to happen again. Because if Aegon does win the Iron Throne and get established before she comes over, if she arrives in the middle of things, maybe it's different. But if he's established and all that kind of thing, well, Varys and Jon Con, if he's still alive and everyone else, they're not going to want Daenerys to come along and take it, are they? No, 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 no. They'll do anything they can to not let that happen. And a great way, a way that Varys really understands, remember, is the look of the thing, is the optics. You can very, very easily turn people against Daenerys, especially your older, prouder lords of Westeros who definitely wouldn't want to be ruled by a woman anyway. They're so much more ready to believe slander and lies about a woman than they are a man. We've discussed that a lot in dance as well and how annoying that is because we've seen the full effect of it. The Yunkish, they love that kind of thing because it works, because they're embarrassed to get beaten by a woman like Daenerys. And the same thing is going to happen in Westeros, unfortunately. And we can expect Arianne's uh, thinking on Daenerys to continue probably down the wrong path. Hopefully it'll be corrected at some point, but there's probably more annoyance to come from her, from other places. As I said right back at the beginning, this is just showing us the kind of thing that will sweep the nation across the winds of winter. This is going to be happening up and down, whether Daenerys comes in this book or doesn't, whatever. This is just setting the blueprint. It's showing the format of what is happening to our setting during this next book. So super, super important. Yeah, that's the chapter. There's a lot of important themes in there, isn't there? As much personal stuff as there is about Ariane at the beginning, it really does hit on a lot of really, really key things, key themes. And I did mention to Aziz and the others, I think this chapter does a great job of keeping themes really present throughout the whole chapter. Normally you can like split things up into sections, but everything is everywhere in this chapter because it's so encompassing for Arianne because it's everything to her because she's completely obsessed by it right now and she has this massive decision to make her and Duran I'd say we've got to bring it back to that knife's edge that they're walking along the big decision do you believe the story do you side of Aegon and Daenerys and Quentin to be fair they both murk those waters don't they Neither Martell, they don't really want to think too much about Quentin. They don't ever suggest the most likely outcome, the one that we ironically know to be true, that he's died, that he's not coming back. Because what does that mean about Daenerys, as well as obviously their emotional pain? Has Aegon defeated her? Or has he just got on the jump or has he just got the jump on her? The the issue is, you really, really don't want to sign up with the non-dragon Targaryen if the free dragon Targaryen is about to turn up and want her chair back. It's a super difficult choice. Should Duran now commit to this dragon, the one in front of him, even if he doesn't have the hoped-for force multiplier of dragons on side, should he go against the philosophy that he's been preaching for 17-odd years, don't play unless you win? Because the thing is, this might be his only chance. Maybe Quentin did fail. Maybe Danny isn't coming, maybe because she's already dead or whatever it is. Maybe this is your one shot, and maybe it is your also one living remnant of Elia. So if it comes to it, what's Duran going to do? Will he go with that preservation of life that's so misunderstood in this world? Or will he do the honourable thing and help out his sister's son? Because if everyone else thinks it is his sister's son and he says no, that's not a great luck either, is it? So there's so many possibilities of giving in to temptation, of going with what your people want, what you want, what your family wants. 
It's very, very difficult. And yes, I do wonder if that kind of decision is what will lead to a potential Dornish split. Just in the talking of these chapters, we've talked about much more Dornish nobility than previous. Tolans and Iowans and Fowlers. I'm not even sure we mentioned the others that Ilaria Sand is going to. They're all over the place. They're being brought up. They are present. Lord Iwood and Fowler, they're up there in the Bones Way and the Prince's Past. They could very easily be seen on page. They could enter the narrative. And Lord Iwood, he's got some bad news coming his way, hasn't he? So we need to see the reaction to that. But what we must remember, as we hinted at when we were talking about Nymella and the resistance of the dragons, is not everyone wants to be of the Targaryens, but then some do. So depending on what Duran and Ariane choose, other houses, powerful houses, frustrated houses who haven't liked how Duran has done things, might break off, they might split. Many of them are just simply hungry for war. Many of them are hungry for war against Targaryens, but some want to get against Lannisters. It's all very, very confusing. And yes, it does seem like one of those things that there just isn't time to cover, but I hope we do get to see it a little bit. I hope we do get to see the cost, or maybe cost isn't the right word, but just the effect of Duran's style, whether that really mixes with the Dornish, because we've heard that it doesn't. That's been a key theme for these Dornish chapters. I want to see how real that is, or maybe he does have more control than we give him credit for. I'd just love to see the fire of the Dornish people and their politics on the show. Maybe that's all together. Maybe that's them actually coming together, roaring out of dawn to either help Aegon or Daenerys or whatever. Or maybe it is a split. This chapter does a great job of setting up both possibilities. Now, I think I've probably complimented this chapter enough. I have gone on and on. Please do forgive me about that. But I must say, it's a brilliant, brilliant chapter. There's so many themes and questions. I probably haven't even covered them all. Again, I encourage you to check out History of Westeros' live stream for this chapter, which did feature yours truly and Emily of the Eerie as well, because there was even more to discuss there. So you really shouldn't be short of information, should you, or short of takes or anything. But I'll give you a rest from my ears now, because, well, I could just go on and on and on about this chapter and about Ariane as well. It's brilliant. The good news is we have another one coming next week, Ariane 2, where we return to the Stormlands, where we interact much more with Aegon's invasion and all those kind of things. I won't spoil any of that for you right now, but that'll be fun. More Ariane, good news for me. And don't forget, like I mentioned right at the beginning, 100 Questions of the Winds of Winter Part 2 will be with you very soon after you're hearing this. Sporkle Spectacular with Emily of the Eerie, that might be with you even before this comes out, not sure, we'll see how things go. And then you'll have Scraps and Scrolls next week with Ariane 2. So lots on the slate, that's without including Scraps and Screens, which is coming. Again, go back and listen to that uh, live stream. And in the meantime, I'll thank you for all of your comments, downloads, listens, and recommendations, and all the types of interaction. Do send your questions, do send your answers. If you'd like to leave us a rating or a review wherever you catch your podcast, that would be lovely. And of course, we do have Patreon with some extra goodies. You can always look at that as well. My thanks go out to each and every one of you. I'm going to stop now, because otherwise I will start talking about Ariane again. I know I will. But either way, we'll see you, whichever episode you tune in for, back on the aisle very soon. We'll catch you then. See you later, everyone. 